name is Rich Baker, and this is Living the Dream. Smoking and drinking. Smoking was allowed in bars back then, so sure. I was already nervous and uncomfortable because I don't <laughs> smoke and never have. Uh, I interview some of the rare few who make their living in the world of entertainment. It was terrible. I mean, all the cir- <laughs> all the circumstances aligned to to really ruin the night for me. <laughs> Special thanks to Phil Ranton, the Comedy Podcast Network. Yeah, I might have just been off the bus with my seven-pound cell phone. Artwork by Tom Burns. You know, the the goth kids who, or the smokers <laughs> who crash prom, who like say, we don't need prom, prom's stupid, and then we all show up and we're like, yeah, we want a Jeff! And we're all- <laughs> Original music by Diana Lawrence. He's, you know, a short, bald drunk, and I have no interest in being that. I mean, well... You can send me an email at livingthedreampodcast at gmail.com. I don't think you understand where you are. I'm like, I probably don't. Check out our Facebook page, facebook.com slash livingthedreampodcast. If you want to learn comedy, you go to Chicago and you go to Second City. That's what I did. This is episode number 21. I speak with Jeff Award winning Second City director, Matt Hovde. Living the Dream. My name is Rich and I have Matt Hovde here with me. Thank you for coming on the show, Matt. Easy peasy, buddy. Yep. Uh, no problem. Uh, I'll take that. Okay, great. I appreciate that. Um, you are a, uh, you've made your living for quite some time as a theater director, specifically for the Second City. That's right. Which I find fascinating. Um, so how long have you been doing that? Well, I guess I, st- I stopped having to work other jobs in 2004 or so. Okay, so a good long while. Yeah. And um, was this something that you knew that you wanted to do, like, for a long time? Forever. Really? Yeah. There okay. was there was no other option, really. I mean, I was always uh, into theatrical stuff as a kid, you know, plays and block party skits and leader of the Boy Scout skits and all that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> leader of the Boy Scout skits? Yeah, like, when we'd have campfires, you'd have, like, family night or something, and you'd have to do oh, skits for the parents and stuff. And, and they were always, like, Matt, oh, I, put those together? Always. Wow. Always. All right. So I had other things that I liked to do, but I never even crossed my mind that I wouldn't try to do this. That's amazing. Now, was it? When did the Second City aspect of that come into play? Well, I guess that I first saw Second City as a kid. I was like ten, and they were putting on a kids show, and one of the neighborhood kids brought us all there for a birthday party or something. Oh wow! So I always kind of knew about Second City, and yeah. then even though I didn't go to college or anything in the Chicago area, I sort of knew that I would like to head back there and make. Make that the place I worked. Wow! So that you you were tailoring your life pretty early on. Yeah, I would say. I mean, it, it was probably when I was a senior in college that I for sure made that decision. Um, but I was, you know, tempted with, oh, you should go to L.A. or do an internship in New York or something. Because certainly, I, I have always thought about working in TV and working for talk shows and that kind of thing too. But I just kind of figured, if you want to learn comedy, you go to Chicago and you go to Second City. So that's what I did. Makes sense to me. Um, now, I, I know how it works, but uh, what I find fascinating about Second City is that, like, as a theater director, you do something different than, I'm going to assume, 99% of all other theater directors do. Yeah, it's not even comparable in some ways. So, could you kind of just talk through the process of, like, so if I'm a producer at Second City and I say, Matt Hovde, I want you to direct the next show what what you kind of your procedure sure i mean when you're talking about how second city makes its living it's creating sketch comedy reviews right it, creating sketch content so the director is sort of in charge of facilitating 
the actors and performers who write their own material through improvisation. So it's it's our job to sort of corral them all and channel them and give them feedback and help them edit and um, brainstorm ideas, etc. So as the director in a not in a book sense, but in a strange way, you're like a head writer because the material gets filtered through you as the director. Yeah. And that's the part of it that I always was very interested in. Um, I feel like I'm resistant to other people telling me how to, you know, how to structure my own creativity. So I was <laughs> never interested in being directed so much. Um, I mean, that, of course, is an exaggeration. But in principle, I was like, oh, if someone's going to decide what we work on and what we don't work on and what kinds of scenes we write, I want to be the guy who decides. So that's kind of how I figured directing was the right path. And then beyond that, you're trying to keep the actors uh, happy and you're trying to keep the ensemble harmonious and you're trying to keep the show interesting and full of variety and you're paying attention to those things. Underneath all that, there's sort of the nuts and bolts directing, which is making sure the show looks good and making sure the blocking is uh, supports the material and coordinating the production elements is another part of it. And I, I did study a lot of that in, in college, but that is not the part that I enjoy. I mean, I, I'm happy to put a little choreography on something, but I don't, I don't do it for that reason. So uh, of all the aspects, your your main thing is that you like kind of, I don't want to say judging, but that's essentially what you do is you judge a sketch and you say, this is good enough for the show. This is not good enough for the show. This needs work. Yeah, it's content generation. Yeah. I mean, that's why Second City attracts a certain kind of comedian in the first place. They want to use improvisation. They want to work within an ensemble. All of those things are important, too. But at the end of the day, you're creating sketches. So that's why directing at Second City is facilitating. You're, you're not a part of the ensemble directly, but you're connected to the ensemble in a very special way to generate ideas, and that's the fun of it. I, um, a lot of my background is in writing also, so that part of my brain gets worked out, even though I'm not necessarily just bringing in scripts to hand to the cast. That's pretty rare, actually, but um, that part of my brain gets a workout as a director. Mm -hmm. Editing, um, figuring out what to heighten about a scene, giving people constructive notes about what they can try next. And the great thing about doing it at Second City is because we rehearse in front of the audience in our improv sets um, in our resident shows, you get a chance to try out a lot of variables and my scientific brain appreciates that approach to it. You're not creating in a vacuum, you're creating in front of an audience. So so when you're directing a Second City show, um, people are still going to see it as if it's like a regular show, but what they don't realize is that some of the scenes, although not a ton of them, but some of them are actually being workshopped. Yeah, that's uh, it's kind of a puzzle that the director puts together every night when you're developing a new show is how to protect the new material by surrounding it with proven material. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at Second City, we use improvisation as a method or process to develop ideas that most of the final product at Second City is, you know, if not scripted, repeated from improvisation o over time. Like, we, you keep re-improvising until you kind of know exactly what's going to happen. So most of that, if it works, it's going to work pretty well every night. And you, yeah. pr you protect the, the rougher stuff or the stuff that is still being explored by putting up those kind of killer sketches around it. I see. Now, you said earlier that it's rare that you would uh, bring a script to a cast, but does it? Is it, like, so rare that it never happens? Or do you have you ever, yeah. like, had an idea for a sketch that you were like, I really want... To give this to them or something like that no not in a context of a resident show you know and what i'm the line that i'm drawing there is our main stage and etc shows are called our resident theaters and so those processes are really they do belong to the actors mm -hmm. now different directors 
fall on a different spot on that scale. There are some directors that have brought in un, uh, unpitched ideas from their own head and said, I want you guys to do a scene about this and this and this, and then the actors do it. Yeah. Um, in my experience, there's already six creative voices in the room that are designed to, that are, <laughs> that are whose job it is to generate material. You, you don't need a seventh, generally. Fair. Um, so... I also try to think that when I'm done with the show and leave and the show runs, that you want them to feel like they owned it and created it. Absolutely. That doesn't mean I don't manipulate them sometimes into doing <laughs> close to stuff I had in mind. And if we, towards the end of a process, a show might need a certain kind of thing. And then I might be not heavy handed, but more direct about what we need. Hey, I need you to write an opener that can tie together this, this, and this. Yeah. Why don't you run it by me? Oh, wouldn't it be nice if it did this, this, and this? Oh, and how about this? Oh, oh, is that what you give me? Oh, this works perfectly. Let's use that. Um, but by that time, everyone's sort of turned the show over to whatever the show has to be, and there's it's not as um, intrusive to their creative process. Yeah, I, I very I can't think of one time that I just came in and said, "You two are going to do this scene, and you're the police officer, and you're the criminal, and you're here's the bits." I've never done that. Fair. But I've brainstormed with people. If someone's like, oh, I'm still looking for a scene idea, I might say, okay, well, read me some of the stuff that you've thought of or you know, bring out your notebook. Let's examine those. And I might say, oh, I like this one. And what if you put a little twist on it? But I, I never feel like those are my ideas. I just feel like I'm crafting their idea. Yeah. Do you feel like as the time has gone on that your brain has gotten better and more pointed toward when you say, I like that one, that it tends to be... Uh, higher hit ratio with an audience well i've had horror stories on on both you know guesses of things that we thought would be great that weren't and things that we thought would be terrible and killed so you're the audience is is a more fair judge than any director but if you're wrong too often as a director you can't do it yeah so the hit rate is higher yes over time the hit rate gets higher you get to understand audiences better you're obviously you, you kind of grow as an artist and you sort of, your instincts get better honed. Um, but there's also an element of subjectivity to it that you can't account for no matter how well honed you are. I might say, I love this idea. This is great. The audience might not get it. And now if I'm trying to pretend I'm the audience member, it's very hard sometimes to be correct about that. But it's, I think you have to hone your sensibility well enough that you can be right more than you're wrong or, or who would listen to you? <laughs> well, fair. Uh, right. Does your personal bias, like, um, I mean, obviously, you know, as you said, you're not generating the content, but when you are done with a show, and you've done, what, six resident shows at mm -hmm. this point? Mm -hmm. That's amazing, first of all. Uh, so do you feel like they reflect Matt Hovde in a way? Hugely. Definitely. Hugely. Yeah, I've, I've yet to do to work on a show where I haven't felt it represented my vision of what Second City could and should be. Uh -huh. um, and part of that is just the the way that I might select scenes distinguishes me from any other director. I mean, if if you imagine that a cast of six can generate a hundred scene ideas in a process, mm. and a, the average show might have 20 to 25 scenes in it, well, a certain amount of those are going to get in no matter who directed it. I mean, you know, if a scene's a killer, killer scene, it would take quite a bold vision to say no to a scene that was very very strong so most directors would put that in right but i might emphasize scenes that have certain qualities and characteristics that other directors would have not seen any potential in and i know that that the vice versa has been true too i've seen shows where i thought i never would have said yes to that idea <laughs> fair 
Can you give me maybe an example of, of the type of things that you look for? Sure. I mean, one thing I'm trying to look for is things that our actors do that are special for them or unique to them. So if someone's got, you know, physical acting skills, trying to find a piece for them that showcases that. Um, if someone's a good singer, I try to find, you know, a moment for them to show off that skill. Uh, if someone's a good actor, we try to find moments where they can really demonstrate that. So I'm all, I'm trying to gauge the potential of each of the cast members and the combinations of cast members. So if I say, oh, these two have chemistry, you know, I'm going to try to find a spot for them to show that off. So those things are tied into what the performers bring. My own instinct, I guess, would be, I mean, I look for variety above anything else. So I feel like you don't want to show that's only two-person relationship scenes. You don't want to show that's all preachy political scenes. You, you don't want to show that's all zany, wacky characters and no heart. So I feel like going in, I want some scenes that are smart, some scenes that are have heart, and some scenes that are just silly and goofy. And I guess I have my own, whatever that means is what my shows are. Okay. It, it might be harder to go deeper than that, but sure. You know, I feel like those are things I look for. I, I try to avoid blackouts that aren't funny 98% of the time. <laughs> All right. And some directors I think might, you know, have different levels of what they look for in a blackout. So, and just to be clear, because, you know, some people listen to the podcast uh, are really unfamiliar with sketch. When we say blackouts, we're saying very short. Yeah, the short, quick, 30-second, one-joke kind of scenes. Yeah. Um, so that was maybe a random tangent for me to latch on to, but that's one thing I know. I'm like, if we don't have a good blackout, I won't use blackouts. Okay. <laughs> they have to be really consistent for me to use them. Uh, I also... Yeah, I mean, I try to... Uh, well... You, you surrender to whatever the group is. You know, you're trying to find what's special about that group. So I don't think I have a, a hard-driven agenda outside of that. Mm. Maybe I do very secretly. <laughs> <laughs> it's so secret that you don't know it? Yeah, maybe it guides me subconsciously or, or you know, to the point where I ever, would never want to voice it for fear of jinxing it or something. So there might be a driven agenda. And I certainly think my shows are different than other directors' shows. And I can I can tell you what Mick Napier might do in a show that I wouldn't do, and I can tell you maybe what Mark Rosecco would do in a show that I don't do, but I don't know that I could tell you what I do that's different from what they do. I just know that <laughs> I recognize what they do, and I say, oh, I would never think about that. I would never do it that way. But I feel like there's a cohesion. Maybe one thing I look for, I tend to find a show that has some sort of theme to it, mm. um, a, a, con a bigger context, often related to the title or inspired by the title. So yeah. I would say that's something that I think is cool and neat that I also recognize is absolutely unnecessary for a great Second City show. For most of the 50 years, there was no thought of matching the title to something or letting that imply oh, a really? theme. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, it, it, the, the titles were usually very clever wordplay designed to either provoke an image, a funny image, and, and just draw people in who are curious about what that might mean. Yeah. But, but there was no, up until the mid-90s, there was very rarely any attempt to contextualize a whole show into a package. Um, that really came about in the 90s with you know shows like Pinata and Paradigm Lost and, and those kinds of shows where they started to imply, with not just through callbacks, but also through staging choices and music choices and scene selection and recurring structures and those kinds of things. Those all started to contribute to, to shows that started to have 
a vibe and a feel to them beyond just what the scenes were. And so because that's partially when I was sort of coming up and learning about Second City and studying it, um, I felt like that was a, a cool goal to strive for. And I, I do work pretty hard to try to find something like that in every show. All right, well, and as someone who's seen all of your shows, I think you do it quite well. Very um, kind. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned a couple names, Mick Napier and Mark Warzeka, who are people who have directed for Second City in the past. Um, were there people that, that when you were trying to get into this job that you were like, I want to be like that person, or you were influenced by that person, or something to that extent. Well, Mick was certainly my my primary mentor in Chicago at Second City. I mean, uh, I met with him very, very early. I, I might have just been off the bus with my seven-pound cell phone, uh, <laughs> you know, trying to reach out and make contacts to anybody I could think of, and I had a very distant kind of connection to Mick, and I ended up sort of meeting up with him one night, and I had not even started classes yet, and uh, I remember hanging out with him. The, the, the story's a, a crazy long one, but the short of it is that I randomly from my cell phone called the Second City. Like, I called information, like, what's the number for Second City? And I <laughs> called Second City and I asked for Mick, having no idea what he did there, if he worked there, how, how, I knew he worked there, but I didn't know what he was doing at the time. Somehow, randomly, they put him on the phone with me, like, wow, at, on the main total number. Total stranger. Total stranger. <laughs> like, he just happened to be walking by or something. They handed him the phone. He said, sure, come out, you know, come meet me after the show tonight, and we'll chat. So I did. Turned out he was directing the main stage at the time. I think he was directing Citizen Gates when that, at that moment, uh, which was um, one of his first big shows on the main stage. So we kind of hung out and went across the street and hung out at a, a bar across the street at the time. It was called The Last Act. And I was at a table and I was, you know, probably 22 years old, some just out of college kid who wanted to do Second City. And I'm sitting next to him and the table's full. And uh, he's obviously a, a character and he's, you know, uh, smoking and drinking. Smoking was allowed in bars back then. So sure. I was already nervous and uncomfortable because I don't <laughs> smoke and never have. Um, but here's this, you know, sort of hardcore kind of arty kind of dude um, chatting to me and I, I did tell him at the time that I was interested in directing and he had very rarely heard that because most people want to be on stage you know sure, yeah. I certainly was performing and interested in studying improv and was doing that but I, I kind of always wanted to pick his brain about directing and it turned out that at that same table um, who I soon came to admire all of these people were folks like uh, Tina Fey Scott adds at Jeff Richmond this was the cast that he had been working with and they wow. were all hanging out at their show. You had a beer with Tina Fey like, absolutely. the night you got the off the bus. Essentially, yes. That's amazing. I had just picked up my cell phone and like bought it <laughs> and ended up kind of at this thing. And I, I at the time, I, I didn't understand how unusual that would be to sort of just be at the bar with this particular table. Yeah. Um, I, I do remember Jeff Richmond at one point, who was maybe on the other side of me, kind of asking me like, who are you, dude? And I was like, oh, I'm just here. I'm talking to Mick about directing. He's like, I don't think you understand where you are. I'm like, I probably don't. <laughs> and I just remember how open Mick was to discussing those things. And, you know, a few months later, I ended up taking classes with him. And, you know, he always kept an eye out for me. And I know that he helped get me in the door for the, the first chance I ever got to direct at Second City it was largely due to him sort of saying, hey, here's a kid that might be worth a shot. Wow. So he and I have always had that sort of uh, mentor relationship and I've always appreciated that. That's amazing. But, but I never thought I want to be him because he's, you know, a short, bald drunk and I have no interest in being that. 
I mean, well, and I then you're totally fine saying that because he would totally say that. He would, he uh, would. and has that I've I've heard him say yeah, that. We're, ap- um, we're apples and oranges that way, but uh, but you both direct really great shows, and that's a funny thing about being a director and maybe an actor too. But I feel like actors on Second City kind of have a theme going. You know, some are different than others, but you there's kind of a through line. Whereas directors, you know, you and Mick are. If I saw you on a bus, I would never think that you had the same job. Yeah, I've always thought that's cool too because. One of the cool things about the improv community in general is it cuts through all the stuff that doesn't matter and just focuses on what does matter, which is what's going on in your brain. And, you know, and Mick and I are very different externally, and uh, you know, I joke that he's a drunk because he basically ruined 20 years of his life, nearly killed himself drinking. I, <laughs> I do hope he listens to this. Uh, and he doesn't drink currently um, because he'll die if he drinks again, unless he consults three more doctors who one of them eventually will tell him he can drink. Anyways... <laughs> We and you don't drink at all. No, I don't. And uh, never have. No, and he thinks I'm uh, uh, an alien. He doesn't understand that at all. He doesn't and, understand, no, like, he's been teasing me for 20 years about that. <laughs> Not quite 20 years, but uh, for many, many years about our that difference in lifestyle choice. The point is, though, um, as different as we, we sort of have different paths our life have taken and different external manifestations, we're both at heart sarcastic. We're both into science. We're both... We both like to cut through. We're both into competition, manipulation, psychology, all the kinds of things that you have to do to sort of succeed at directing. We share, mm. and and that's. I mean, that I think that that's be, not just directors who have that, but I think there's something about the improv community that, it like, we're sort of like we've broken out of cliques in a certain way of whatever. Uh, click you were associated with before and it's like no you can be on stage and share an amazing scene with a blue collar guy who you know came from a very different background and you could be on stage with a Harvard grad who is smart ass you know and wants to be the next Conan O'Brien and they could be next to the the hot girl from college who you know is super smart and wants to be funny along with uh, you know the subversive dark angry comedian <laughs> you know all of those people can share moments on stage that transcend any of those things. Absolutely. Now, one thing you touched on, uh, which I'm fascinated by, is like, when I moved to Chicago to be an actor, I had no idea. Like, I was blown away that I thought I was kind of doing something original. Uh, and I, clearly I was not, you know, and there's people who move there from literally everywhere in the country and, and several places around the world um, to be actors. But I, I don't think there's that many who want to be directors, particularly for Second City, that no, I know of. No, there aren't. Um, so I know now's different, and we'll talk about that in a second, but at the time, what was? how did you go from being a guy who didn't live in Chicago to being a director? Like, what, what was the path that you tried to blaze? Well, I, I guess as soon as I figured out that the director gives notes on the scenes i mean that just made sense i mean i studied tv film directing in college so my degree is in you know more technical sort of television and cameras and lighting techniques and all those kinds of things cinematography those types of things yeah. so part of me must have always known that being in control of it it was something that i was probably going to gravitate towards right um but when i came to second city and you know there was no director's program at the time it was uh, the goal, as for most people, it still is uh, at in the training center to go through the conservatory, which is sort of the teach you how to do a second city style review. You know, yeah. so I did that as a writer and performer, and uh, I guess I figured, well, 
I'm, I'm taking notes from the teacher on what our scenes are. And I, I had a really great experience there. I had great teachers like Norm Holly and Mick, you know, in, in the training center who always sort of had this thing of you're learning to find your voice. So they, they basically empowered whatever your ideas were. Mm. Were. So I always appreciated that. But then as soon as we start, I started writing sketch comedy outside of Second City. As soon as we started um, the Galileo Players, which is the group that I started with a couple of conservatory classmates of mine, I said, well, I'm not letting anybody come el- anybody else come in and tell us what scenes to do. No way. <laughs> I, mean, I just knew right away like that I was never going to take notes from anybody else on our material. I was going to say, we'll fight it out amongst ourselves. And I wanted to direct our first show just because... I wanted it to be whatever it is we wanted, and I didn't want it to give that power to somebody else. And were you also a performer? Not in that first show, no. So you just directed? Right. Yeah. Which they, they were a little like, why do you want to do that? You know, because we had performed together for a year in conservatory. So sure. there was a little bit of curiosity about why. And I said, well, because I don't want to, because I believed we need a director, because I. I don't really think it's easy it, with more than two people to self direct your show. I. I generally they're a wreck there's been groups that have succeeded that way but i think it was hard oh, yeah. i'm like but i'm not going to bring in even someone like mick whose opinion was much more informed than ours i didn't want him to come in and say don't do this scene do this and that's not good enough i'm like we'll live or die based on our instincts and then when it, i look towards second city i i certainly hadn't never said well i don't want to be an actor at second city of course i i did um but i always thought wouldn't it be cool to be the guy who gives notes to the actors and who can, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, I just always thought that was, that was cool. So for, I don't ever remember thinking I'm not interested in that. I just always thought, yeah, that's something I could do and would be, would be a, a good challenge. So from directing the first show, of the Galileo players, did you wind up directing other shows and then building kind a resume? Of, uh, yeah. I mean, we, we wrote, several shows and some of them I was in and some of them I didn't direct like eventually I got past that and um you know I guess I probably directed from within a cast and that was not a smart idea I did that once Mm. like I was in the cast and I directed and then you realize well you cannot give notes to other people and then not take notes from anybody else that that's not fair but I did it uh and you know you kind of learn that way what not to do and I directed a couple of side projects that uh, where I was trying to figure out, I was trying to figure out what my method would be or what my process would be, and you know some not successful shows, and it, it, I didn't have a huge resume of outside of Galileo stuff. I was really just saying like, no, this is the, this is the group that I want to learn my craft in and apply it, and see if we can get some good reviews and see if we can do well at comedy festivals and stuff. And we did enough of those things. And then you start knocking on second city's door and saying, Hey, you should be hiring me. You should be hiring me. And you know, they ignore you for, for a few years. So <laughs> it's still hard to, to get in the door that way. And so like you've, you've directed all these Galileo shows at this point, And then you've got Mick whispering into someone's ear and that's kind of how they took a chance on you. I, I, I guess, yeah, it must've been that way. You know, I think you always are like, well, what can I do? What can I, what else can I do? How, what yeah. will they do to notice me? What, what can I do? Sure. And there's no good answer. And, you know, I'm in a position now, not just in the training center, but as a director where people ask me, like, what can I do to, to get Second City's attention? And, you know, I gave, I give the same answer now that I had to eventually learn on my own, which was you just keep doing the best work you can and then hope that the right circumstances allow them to see it. 
and sometimes you can control that, but you can't always, you know. You yeah. Have, um, one of our producers, Beth Kligerman, who's the director of talent at Second City, um, she has a couple of she has a lot of sayings, but one of her, one of her sayings is, you know, everyone's path is different, so you can't say, well, he did it this way, so I I I should be able to do it that way because it doesn't doesn't work right i can't count on your path being successful for me i have to kind of do my own thing sure um but another thing that she says which we all sort of have to deal with is you you try to do good enough work so that people start talking about you in with reverence you know like oh you should check out that group they're really good and the more people that start saying that then second city starts to go oh the who the (laughs) what the, the what group oh okay and then maybe they think to send someone to come look at it or whatever um but it takes a lot longer than you want it to, and you have to get a little lucky, and you have to try to work with the best people you can. And you know, I had uh, the the first time I convinced them to come see a second city, or I convinced Second City to come see a Galileo show. It was terrible. I mean, all the cir- <laughs> all the circumstances aligned to to really ruin the night for me. I mean, it was really bad. Well, we had, which goes to show yeah. that. Like even you know you shouldn't hinge everything in one show because obviously it worked out for you and some well of the it other did people. but but I, I I felt lucky to get a second chance yeah as it was happening I just thought this is over I'm done well, where, what was going on uh, with just the show? technical errors and uh, you know we we were at a particular theater that didn't attract our demographic we were trying to adapt a show for a different demographic which I never should have invited Second City to see that I mean it was it, we were not in our element yeah and because our stuff is very weird our stuff is not second city-esque our style is much more absurd and weird and historical and uh it it's not two-person relationship scenes it's not truth-driven slice of life scenes so already the product is one step removed from what second city does but then we were playing in a theater that does not attract people who understand absurdity i mean it was just they didn't get it at all yeah and but that was the show that i i mean you, you pitched them all the shows and then they came on one particular night and we were at our worst performance wise, you know, and the audience wasn't great and it just was not a good not a good night for us. Totally. And fair. then you think, okay, well, I might have ruined my chance, but I'm not gonna give up yet. And I, I went around to the producers and apologized the next week or something. I'm just like, I want you to know I don't expect you to be impressed by what you saw. I wasn't good enough. I wouldn't hire me off that. There are reasons why it was not ideal for me, but um I want you to come see something else I do and I'll show you that that was oh fluke. But it took another year after that for them to give me another chance. I mean, it, you know, I dug a hole for sure. Wow. But they somehow were able to say, okay, if you put a show up in this particular venue, we'll come see it. And it was um, an off-night venue at Second City at that time where they were taking outside submissions. So I did what I thought I had to do, which is cast three of the best people I knew to, knew uh, that I knew they knew, you know, <laughs> and... Yeah. and I'm like, we put together a show in like two weeks and put it up, and I knew that that was it. It was either going to be good enough or not. Apparently it was. It was a good show. Uh, Nice. It was good. Very cool. It was good, and they saw it, and a week later I was directing a touring company. Wow. Essentially. That's amazing. Um, Talk about the Galileo players for a second. So, like, this is a group that it was just you and some friends started and, and wound up getting i mean it's gotten big enough to where you've talked about at least in, like you've done corporate shows and like touring shows and stuff with yeah them we and... created a nice uh, a nice small little business for ourselves how does one even go about like if if my goal is i want to put together a group and then start touring and doing stuff like how did you guys even do that not even thinking about it 
we just we knew that we had a similar sensibility. This is Tom Flanagan, Ronnie Feldman, and, and myself. We were in the same conservatory class. Tom and I had a very um, similar sense of humor, similar you know uh, background in science and like, or at least an interest in science and scientific sort of methodology and and as a topic for satire. Uh, so as soon as we finished, we just, there was, I don't even remember doubting for one second that that's what we would do. I feel like while we were mounting our graduation show in the conservatory, we were scouting other classes to find a couple other people that we wanted to work with. Mm. I mean, there wasn't even a, a three or four month break before we were writing and developing our show. It, it was pretty much, we're going to do a show. We met with uh, one of our mentors and said, we're going to form a group. Do you have any advice? And the one advice they said was uh, maybe think of a, a niche for yourselves that might distinguish you from just a group of sketch comedians. And so we kind of picked science as our springboard. And that's obviously sort of where we came up with the name Galileo. And we recruited three other actors from uh, other classes that we had saw and thought were sharp and solid and we had one guy who had a business background, Ronnie, and so he was able to sort of bankroll the the company. I mean, whatever that meant, pay for rehearsal space, um, figure out how to sign a contract with a theater. We just rented a, we At that time, uh, we have a theater on the fourth floor of Second City called Skybox, which was just producing independent productions at that time. So you had to submit every few months. They took submissions, and we submitted and just said, here's who we are, and here's what our show is going to be. And they picked us, so our first show, we ran for a month in the Skybox like late nights yeah and then as soon as we finished that one we booked another theater and did another show and did another show and we ended up writing seven reviews wow some mounted at victory garden summit live bait athenaeum and we just bounced around to different you know 60 to 100 seat theaters hmm. and we just did it and, and eventually we thought well eventually they'll notice us and we're, we just kept you know trying to do our thing nice and then once you know all of a sudden Tom starts getting attention as an actor from Second City and starts getting called back from the tour co-auditions and you start to think, okay, so they, they kind of know who we are maybe right now and they haven't come and seen us yet, but, oh, we did this festival and we got a lot of good buzz from this festival and then we did this and then people we work with, other people we work with start getting called back and then Tom gets on the touring company and now all of a sudden they have a reason to say, oh, well, you know, who are these guys or what are they working on? Yeah. So... I, that's one way that you sort of get their attention. It's just like you just do your thing. I, I never remember doubting that we wouldn't just start writing. I mean, that that that's always the drive is create sketches, write sketches, do it. And we tried to mimic the Second City process, even though we didn't have an audience to develop our material generally. Yeah. But we used improvisation in every rehearsal. We recorded all our rehearsals. We transcribed stuff. We re-improvised stuff. We applied our sketch craft to to them. And you know, you just you just start doing it it's very easy and, and we were kind of warned i think mick used to warn people about like one of his pet peeves is people who talk about mounting a show and never do it you know it's very easy to say yeah we want to do a show we want to write a show yeah everyone wants to write a show or th thinks they want to write a show by doing it you distinguish yourself from the the pack already yeah so i, I don't think we ever even needed that advice personally i think we just were like let's write more sketches <laughs> We got a couple of scenes in the in our graduation show. We have a hundred more ideas we want to work on. Let's write. Let's write a show. And we just did it. Is, uh, let's talk about your Jeff Awards for a second. You have you won how many Jeff Awards have you won? Uh well, I don't. I don't count. I mean, nominated probably a few dozen. No, that's not true. <laughs> uh, well, uh, 
I've won a couple of the shows that I've worked on have won uh, a few. So Studs Turkle, I won director, but that show also won best review. Uh-huh. Um, and then the show I just directed for ETC, Sky's the Limit, weather permitting, we won best ensemble, best new review, uh, best new work. Uh, so those are pretty fun awards to get. First of all, Jeff Awards, for people who don't know, are essentially like the Emmys for Chicago theater, right? I get yeah, they're the Tonys maybe. The Tonys, yeah. Yeah, I mean they're uh, the Chicago Theater Awards. Mm-hmm. So they have an equity division and a non equity division and Second City is one of the few kind of comedy improv theaters that um, is eligible because our actors on our resident stages are equity actors. Um so we're we qualify for those. Do you, uh did it kind of blow your mind the first time that you were like, I'm nominated for a Jeff Award? As an artist, you have such a weird relationship with, uh, with critics and the media. So. I sort of have I sort of steel myself against needing that for validation. Yeah. Which is not to sound ungrateful, but the truth is like, I don't work on shows for the critics' approval, and I don't work on them for Jeff Awards. I I work on them for, so that, a, we're proud of them, b, our peers are proud of them, and then see that the audiences enjoy themselves. Yeah. So those three things are non-malleable criteria, right? If you're not proud of the work, it's pointless. If your peers aren't proud, it's not pointless, but it's disappointing. I'd much rather have the approval of our peers than, than a, a good review. And then if the audience isn't happy, you won't work, right? So well, yeah. th- those, those three things are essential. Um, anything else on top of that helps draw attention to the work that you've done. And so on that level it's real exciting to be a part of like to be recognized and you know you when you get a good review from the tribune or something it means the show will run longer and it means people it means my you know my parents friends in the suburbs will see an article about it and and recognize you for that and that feels awesome it's great it it drives the business it means more work for the actors it means audiences who are excited so that's that's the thrilling part and then you know so I'm not d- diminishing what it feel how cool it is to sort of be nominated and you, you go to the ceremony and you wear nice clothes and there's <laughs> nice food and it's people in beautiful dresses and all these things and then you know when you win you get to give a little speech and it they, the orchestra plays you off so there is that circumstance and pomp but uh, I think it's more it, there's a, a pleasure in being recognized but I don't know that I'm it, I don't need it for validation yeah and, and that's just sort of how I've always approached it. Like I can't, I can't need those things to do this job. I, I just can't. And that's probably extraordinarily healthy. <laughs> it is. And it doesn't mean that I don't read the reviews cause I do. And it doesn't mean that I don't argue them cause I do sometimes I, I think I, in their ideal form, critics are necessary. I think awards committees can be helpful for drawing attention to the community and Chicago theater community is amazing. Right. Oh, I mean, yeah. that, that's the great thing about those awards is, it shows you how many diverse groups there are in Chicago and how proud we are of our theater community and how important it is to the city. So there's a huge importance to it all. It is kind of funny because we go there and we're like, you know, the the goth kids or, or the smokers <laughs> who crash prom who like say, we don't need prom, prom's stupid. And then we all show up and we're like, yeah, we want a job. And we're all, <laughs> we, we run in such different circles to, from some of those other theaters um, that we find it amusing. And Second City gets nominated often uh, but doesn't win a lot just because we, we have a strange category we're not competing with other works that are like our own 
Yeah. There's not a lot of review, sketch comedy reviews in our category. So a lot of times we're losing to the Ella Fitzgerald story. And like, how can you compete with that as far as, sure. uh, you know, for, for a theatrical audience? So when you win, that, that feels pretty good. I've been real proud of the shows that have won. And I, yeah, I mean, I, it's fun to have that little thing on the, the mantelpiece. Yeah. Uh, I've pretty much everyone I've asked this to so far has always given the same answer. Uh, and the answer is, I don't know. But uh, I'll ask it nonetheless. What's next for you? What's the next goal? Do you have one? Do you are you just kind of letting the wind take you? Well, at the moment, th- as an artist, you're usually an independent contractor, right? So right. you're always the next project is always what's important. <laughs> Finding the next project, lining something up. I started working in the Second City Training Center in Chicago almost two years ago as the artistic director, which is. Um, the first kind of steady gig I've had in the Second City community. So I, it doesn't preclude me from directing and doing some of the other independent contract stuff that I do. Um, but that's allowed me to think a little bit longer term about what I might do in Chicago or how long I might stay. As a director, you can you can last longer than an actor in a certain way at Second City because if you reach the goal of writing a show on a resident stage um, as an actor, you know, I think the longest people have ever written is four or five shows. I mean, there have been a few actors who have maybe done a couple ETC shows and then four or five main stage shows, but that can all occur in three or four years. Yeah. So you can be an actor for many years for Second City if you um, work in the touring companies, if you work in theatricals. Now, now that we have the ships, people, a lot of actors make a living on the ships. Um, we have a Second City Communications, which is our corporate division. So there are a lot more ways now as a performer to last longer than just a couple of years. So the community is much bigger and more supported these days um, in that way. Would I do this forever? I I don't know. I mean, some of my predecessors as directors have done it for a long time. Yeah. I mean, Bernie Solins and Sheldon Patinkin and and Mick have certainly directed over the course of many, many years. Yeah. um, On and off. Um, I don't think I'm content only to do that, but that's why I, you know, still try to pursue other things. It's pretty cool to have the potential to kind of work in the training center which was very influential to me mm. but at, coming up I mean everything that I did there springboarded me to do what I'm doing now so it's a pretty it's a thriving community right now our training center yeah so that's allowed me to think oh maybe I could do this for a few years and direct you know direct some shows here and there and write on my own and perform occasionally if they you know if everyone else gets sick I get to perform sometimes so. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Uh, okay, so here's the, the kind of signature question for this podcast that I ask everyone. In a world, uh, in a hypothetical world, where it's impossible to make a living off of entertainment, uh, for whatever reason, um, and you're forced to get a quote-unquote civilian job, what could you do that wouldn't make you tear your hair out? Well, I could... Uh, there's several things that I, I, I was interested in enough that I could have pursued careers in them. I, oh, really? I, okay. For sure. Most people have a real hard time with this. So that's, no, it. not at all. Uh, <laughs> whether I could have been successful or not, I, I won't venture to guess, but I was definitely interested in, in math and science when I was in high school and stuff. I never studied science seriously in college because it would be it's very hard to do that and the arts at the same time just yeah. because they're both pretty immersive. Um, but there was a time when I thought, oh, it, what a cool life it would be to be like, 
a mathematician or something like solving excuse me solving problems and uh, tackling brain mysteries and that kind of stuff so that would have been something I would have been very interested in doing um, nice. teaching in some way would have been easy and fun uh, but if you say not teaching in the arts well then I don't know maybe not yeah. uh, maybe that wouldn't have been satisfying enough I always thought thought about lawyering lawyering lawing <laughs> uh, because of the argument nature of it yeah my again that sort of speaks to that puzzle solving competition sort of part of my brain that's like if there were a way to argue without any real consequences, that would have been the most exciting thing as a lawyer. Fair. To be, to be arguing in favor of someone actually being executed or not, well, that puts a little more pressure on it. But in theory, I could argue all day. All right, good. Mm -hmm. I, w I won't argue you with that. Uh, you touched on this earlier, but I, I, I'm a 15-year-old kid who wants to direct at Second City. What advice do you give me? Well, these days, there's a lot of things you could be doing. The first is... You know, study as many aspects of the art as you can. So take improv classes. There's high school teen programs at Second City and at other theaters. So get involved right away. Start writing sketches. To me, the writing part of it is what will help you as a director mm. um, even more than just improvising and performing, although it certainly doesn't hurt to be a good improviser. Yeah. Um, but I think the writing part of it is key. And there, we have opportunities to do that even at that age. We're starting to see payoffs when those programs were founded years ago. We're starting to see actors um, and writers in our company who came from those teen and, and youth programs. Um, now they're old enough to be working for Second City and they're doing very well. Yeah. So that's the way to do it. As far as how to become a director specifically, well, they generally don't hire 22, 23-year-old directors. I mean, it takes a little more seasoning than that. So yeah. just focus on honing a point of view, a comedic point of view. And that, that's probably the best way to sort of get good at comedy first. Yeah. And then then start to boss people around. <laughs> Fair enough. This has been fascinating and awesome. And thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure, Rich. Keep up the good work, buddy. Living the dream. Huge thank you to Phil Ranton, the Comedy Podcast Network. Original artwork by Tom Burns. Original music by Diana Lawrence. If you have any questions about the show or suggestions for who I should interview next, drop me an email, livingthedreampodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash livingthedreampodcast. If you haven't already done so, subscribe on iTunes. Leave a comment. Rate the show. Next week's episode features stand-up comedian Rod Long. Thanks for listening. My name is Rich Baker, and this is Living the Dream. Living the Dream.